Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, welcome. This is episode 20 in our series that explores the history of Main Man, the innovative management rights company that rewrote the business side of rock and roll in the early 70s. Featuring behind-the-scenes stories from those who experienced the excitement, the hedonism and the excesses firsthand. And he said, see her? And I said, yes. And he said, well, he says she's a woman. And so she is. And that's what you do. You just say whatever it is you are, and then that's what you are. Everyone will believe you. Tony DeFries was the main man, and he represented and mentored a diverse roster of acts that included David Bowie, Amanda Lear, Iggy Pop, Mott the Hoople, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mick Ralphs, and John Mellencamp. It was Ronson's idea to put all that percussion and the drum solo in there and the big background vocal parts. So he was very instrumental on the instrumental arrangement of the music and also the vocal arrangements. The funny thing about that is that Mick would never tune his guitar, so we we used to sneak in and uh, when he wasn't looking, tune his guitar for him because he'd go, Johnny, it's just close enough. You know, and I didn't understand that at the time, but I do now. In today's episode, we're at home with Dana Gillespie, reading chapters from her new memoir, Weren't Born a Man, which was the title of her first Main Man album. After DeFries established an American head office for Main Man in central New York, Dana picks up the story when it was time to get her own place. After several months living with David and Angie, Main Man finally got me a flat on 58th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. Moving in was delayed because Iggy Pop and Wayne County had been living there and the cleaners complained that the place was left in a truly disgraceful condition. It took them three days to clear up the poppers, the shit, the syringes and all the drug paraphernalia before it was okay for me to move in. Once I had settled in, I quickly discovered that there was another flat opposite my front door that was occupied by some very busy hookers. Sometimes I'd find clients waiting on the stairs for their turn to be let in for some action. What they didn't know was that there was a grill in the wall between the two flats, so that if I stood on the edge of my bath, I could see into their bathroom, and the view was sometimes quite eye-opening. Main Man was such an exciting company to be with and there seemed to be no shortage of money. I was put on a weekly wage and all my expenses, including travel, were covered by the company. DeFries really cotton-wooled my life from the daily grind and all I had to do was produce good songs and so I spent much of my time at the piano or on the guitar. I was now spending my time commuting between New York and London. I'd gathered a lot of instruments in the bunker, a full drum kit, a bass guitar that Bowie had given me, several John Bailey handmade acoustic guitars, a Martin D41 guitar with abalone shell and an early Stratocaster bought at Manny's Music Store in New York. I'd replaced my old Vortexian machine that could record on two tracks with a more modern Revox. And so many of my friends were musicians and they'd often drop by into the bunker to hang out and just play. 
day, or I'd use it as a rehearsal room. One thing I regret is that I lost the tapes I recorded of Mark Bolan and David Bowie jamming together and knocking out some new songs. They would probably be worth something these days. I've always disputed the fact that there was friction between Bowie and Bolan. They were friends and I never saw any tension between them. Mark was the first to have real success when Rider White Swan reached number two in the charts in early 1971. But he had recorded it only a few weeks after playing guitar on David's Pretty Star single. Mick Ronson followed Mark's guitar part when the track was re-recorded for Aladdin Sane. David even did a light-hearted impersonation of Mark's voice on Black Country Rock on his Man Who Sold the World album. There's always a kind of friendly rivalry between them, but it was other people who invented the alleged bitter competitiveness, presumably just to sell newspapers. Bowie was much more taken by the New York scene than I ever was. I'm far too European to ever want to live in America. But he was fascinated by the whole shebang, which in so many ways had led to the establishment of Main Man. Although I wasn't there when Bowie first met Warhol because of the connection with all the pork people, such as... Tony Zanetta, Cherry Vanilla and others working for Main Man. Someone suggested that we get Warhol's factory to do the cover of my next album, Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle. The Warhol factory is a bit like the Walt Disney Studios. Stuff went out under the name of Warhol, but there were several people in the factory actually producing the artwork. The final screen print was done by an artist called Richard Bernstein, based on a photograph taken by Terry O'Neill. There were two versions. Tony DeFries, I think, has the one with the blue background, which was the version used for the cover of the album. And I have the other one, which is day-glow pink and sickly yellow. Not at all the kind of thing I would ever hang on my own wall. I was at my slimmest tottering around in my Manolo Blahniks and everyone was dressed in their wildest outfits as we swung through New York. I was having an amazing time. I love five-star hotels. I love room service. I love Bloomingdale's. I love spending a fortune on homemade lilac chocolates and essential oils from Kiehl's and I love padding round hotels in bare feet when people were dropping in all the time and nobody was paying any bills. Well, obviously main man was, but I wasn't. It must have cost an absolute fortune for this entourage to stay for weeks and weeks and weeks in the Sherry Netherland. De Vries had already said that I should get a band together to tour with after my knee operation, so the moment I knew I was leaving Superstar, I asked Simon Phillips, the drummer in the show, if he would leave the show at the same time as me, and happily he said yes. That was the start of him being in my band for the next two years. I had noticed on the nights when he wasn't playing in Superstar, the show somehow lacked the fire that was there when he was drumming, and it was amazing that a 16-year-old boy could have such an impact. I've always been very lucky with musicians I've used, but the band I had then was exceptional, mainly because of Simon. He was an amazing drummer who had gone on to have a spectacular career playing with everybody from Asia to Zappa and pretty well everybody in between. There is a saying in the music biz that a band is only as good as its drummer, and with Simon on board, our band was definitely flying high.
Travelling with musicians in America was very different to touring in Europe. For example, we had to watch out for Simon, who was still underage, and therefore not meant to be in some of the venues where we were playing, as the drinking laws were very strict. In the end, de Vries decided it was more economical to get an American band to work with me, as it was costing too much to bring in the British guys constantly. Once we were on the road, it became clear that we needed a tour manager, and through an introduction from Main Man, I got one, a marvellous gay guy called Daryl Peck. English musicians in America were known for their sexual conquests, as the English accent seemed to turn American girls on, but no one could compete with Daryl's exploits. Every morning at breakfast, I would be falling about with laughter, hearing about his nightly sexcapades, which usually seemed to involve truck drivers. Sadly, Daryl is now in that gay funfair in the sky. While in New York in 1974, I had a residency at a club called Reno Sweeney's, playing ten nights in a row. Reno's was a club a bit like Ronnie Scott's in London, and in the 70s was known as one of the trendiest places in the city. Whilst there, the New York Times gave me a great review, describing me as a pulsating performer, main man artiste, the Baroness Dana Gillespie made her American debut at Reno Sweeney's attracting one of the trendier crowds of recent weeks, leading the list of stellar personalities, was none other than Raquel Welsh. On the second night of Dana's engagement, David Bowie himself was there, entertaining Bob Dylan and Bette Midler at his table. <laughs> End of quotes. After Reno Sweeney's, I went on an American tour with my band, on a few occasions when I was playing, but David didn't have a show, Earl Slick and Michael Kamen from his band came and played with me. Earl played with David a lot in subsequent years, including on his serious Moonlight, Heathen and Reality tours. Many people may remember Michael Kamen for co-writing Everything I Do, I Do It For You, the song that Brian Adams had a huge hit with. But during his career, he played with pretty well everybody, from Aerosmith to Kate Bush, Eric Clapton to Pink Floyd. He also wrote loads of film scores. And he should have lived longer, but sadly died of a heart attack in London in 2003. One gig that wasn't too well organised by Main Man was a large venue at Washington University. I got there for the sound check and found that I was due to perform in a huge gymnasium where they probably played basketball. Just before we went on, I remember thinking how quiet it seemed. So I peeped through the curtains and there were only about 20 people in the audience. I'd been mistakenly booked at a weekend when all the students had left for the holidays and only stragglers who couldn't get home were in the audience. So I'm thinking, holy shit, when my wonderful keyboard player, Larry Luddicky, whispered in my ear, you know, when this happens, what you do is you go out and you say to the people, please don't worry that there are so few people here. Just remember, in life, some of the best times you will ever have is when there are only two people. So I went out and said that, after which it went swimmingly well. It was a really great concert with some of the audience, well, most of it, almost sitting on the stage with the band. And while I was in Boston on the Main Man tour, I was lucky enough to see my hero, Muddy Waters, with Pine Top Perkins on piano in a small joint that doesn't exist anymore called Powell's Mall. Clubs like this are a joy to go to as you see the performer up close. The ceiling was so low that I could almost put my hand on it 
and I got to sit very near to Muddy's feet. The vibe was the same as you used to get in all the great smoky clubs which provide an intimacy you never get in a large venue. It was a great experience and one I'll never forget. On another occasion on the mainland tour, we arrived in San Antonio to find a huge banner saying, Welcome to Dana Gillespie. But immediately above it, there was another sign saying, The VD seminar starts today. The two signs weren't connected, but I always wished I'd taken a photograph of them. The first time I went to L.A., I had stayed in a cheap motel in Santa Monica, but when I came back at the end of my 1974 tour, I moved into the Hyatt House, known by all musicians and groupies as the Riot House, and on the rooftop was a swimming pool where the musicians would recover from the night before. For amusement, people would sometimes ask the reception to put a call out for Alan Wanker or Mike Hunt, or Isaac Hunt, and everyone by the pool would piss themselves laughing when the call came over the tannoy system. Bowie was now well into his American tour promoting the Diamond Dogs album. This was originally intended to be based on George Orwell's 1984, but when Orwell's estate refused consent, David instead created his own post-apocalyptic concept while still using certain ideas from the book, and tracks included Big Brother, We Are the Dead, and rather unsubtly, 1984. There is an interesting story about the album's remarkable cover. Mick Jagger found an artist, a Belgian chap called Guy Pellard, and commissioned him to do the cover for the next Stones album, It's Only Rock and Roll. Mick then made the mistake of telling David about him and showing him Guy's book of surreal images of rock stars, which had been published in 1973 under the name Rock Dreams. David nicked the idea and got Pellart to produce the extraordinary half-man, half-dog cover based on photos taken by Terry O'Neill. It caused quite a stir at the time, if for no other reason than the record company decided to airbrush out the dog's bollocks from the original painting. By the time Bowie and his entourage arrived to perform the Diamond Dogs show in L.A., Main Man had taken over the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, one of the best and most expensive in Hollywood, and the whole mad circus moved in. I can't remember the name of the suite that Bowie was in, but de Vries was in the Christian Dior suite, Mark Bolan, who for some reason was with us, was in the Mark Bowen suite, and Leslie and I were in the Jean-Pierre Vassarelli suite, All the art in the suite, which was made up on the two floors, was by the named artist. It had been six weeks since the last show on the tour at Madison Square Garden in New York, so David and the band spent a couple of days rehearsing at a film studio before the first of what would be seven days' run in L.A., and Angie and I went along to the rehearsals one day, and I was astonished by the size and scale of the production. The show itself was at the Universal Amphitheatre in Los Angeles, and I was lucky enough to see several performances, one of which was filmed by Alan Yentob for the BBC documentary about Bowie called Cracked Actor. His performance was truly wonderful and moving, and the whole show was a spectacular production with no expense spared. The dancers were choreographed by Tony Basil, who in 1981 had a global hit as a singer with Mickey. The lighting was done by Jules Fisher, who was the top New York theatre man at the time, and the sets were like a Broadway production. There was a large red mechanical hand from which Bowie stepped out onto the stage and a bridge 
that went up and down from which he would sing, and at one point he sat on a thing like a space capsule that went out over the audience while he sang Space Oddity, and when the line from the song came, Tell my wife I love her very much, she knows, Angie, who was sitting next to me in the front row, clutched my hand. It's such a shame that this production was never seen back in England because it really was the best show ever, but I guess it was just too expensive to put on. While we were in Hollywood, De Vries set up a meeting for me with Raquel Welsh, who'd just done some TV specials as a singer-dancer called, highly originally, The Raquel Welsh Show. She was now looking for a record producer and De Vries had suggested me for this job, as well as offering her some of my own compositions. Now I'm as happy producing as I am singing, so was quite interested in the idea, but somehow it never got off the ground. I don't know why it didn't happen. She was probably just too busy being a glamorous film star. David refused to fly anywhere at the time, so after the LA run was over, he had to be driven through the night in a huge limo to get to the next venue in time. Everyone else in the production went by plane, but David needed someone to keep an eye on him in the car. And if his assistant Corrine couldn't do it or Angie was busy, I sometimes went with him just to keep him company. Thinking back to these days, I probably drove with him five or six times and he would usually just sit quietly in the corner of the back seat looking out of the window. He was hardly eating anything at the time, surviving on a diet of milk and copious amounts of cocaine, so he used to have very little sleep. Despite doing loads of coke, he somehow never once did a bad show. He did get thinner and thinner and thinner, and by the time he got to the end of the tour, he was really twitchy and not at all relaxed. How he kept going for the whole tour and how his voice held up, I have no idea. The show was so exhausting that everyone was worried that David's lifestyle would knock him out before the tour ended. Somehow he survived it. By the end of it, though, he'd become so worryingly pale. This was ideal for his role in Nick Rogue's film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, and for his next stage character, which was the Thin White Duke. In later years, Bowie was reasonably honest about his coke involvement during this period. The cocaine certainly changed him once he got to America. Not his basic character, but physically. He was tired, he was wired, and he often seemed to have his mind on other things. De Vries once said to me that one of the main reasons he and Bowie split was because he could no longer handle Bowie's intake, though I had already seen signs of friction between them. David and Angie always rented houses, but after he was riding high in America, David told me that he wanted to buy somewhere permanent to live, but had been told by DeFries that he couldn't because there wasn't any money. It had all been spent on recording, promotion and running the main man company. This was when I first started to see clashes between the two of them, which in time led to the total collapse of their relationship. It was certainly true that everyone in Mainman was spending money like water, as we all had 24-hour limos at our disposal and personal assistance, while all our expenses were being taken care of. Obviously, it couldn't last, and slowly things began to crumble. The gradual demise of Mainman was beginning, and de Vries had decided it was time to pull in the financial reins. The cracks started to appear when bills weren't getting paid, as Mainman was living far beyond its means. The office on Park Avenue was the first to go, together with most of the staff. 
It had always employed too many people in the office, and I certainly didn't need a personal assistant, although it was fun. But like so many other things, it was just an expensive extravagance, and one by one, the employees were dropped from the payroll until, in the end, there was just a skeleton staff in London. By this point, all David seemed to want to do was escape from his wife, from his manager and even from his band. He wanted to break free. He was becoming a bigger and bigger star and I think he started to believe some of the people who'd been coming round saying, we can get you a better deal. And his assistant, Corinne, was increasingly being used as a barrier to anyone who tried to get through to him. He needed peace and he needed sleep. But he didn't get much of that either, thanks to the cocaine. Although I had a lot of fun in America, made loads of friends and spent a lot of my time partying in between working with great musicians, I knew that the party was over and it was time for me to come home. As Main Man collapsed and America became a bittersweet memory, as I always knew it would, it wasn't the end of my world and I didn't even miss America much. The sad part for me was when I realised that the people I'd known and loved dearly in the five years of Main Man's existence were all going to be scattered across the globe, many of them I never saw again. Bowie headed for Berlin, de Vries moved to Zurich, Angie was having a terrible time too as she could see that her marriage to David was over and that left the problem of divorce and custody of their son Zoe. It's always sad when two people can't even talk anymore. At least David always had his music to keep his life together. But it was really hard on Angie as she was losing not just her husband but her son, her job and what she thought was her best friend. I felt very sorry for her, but there was nothing I could do except be there when she needed a shoulder to cry on. David was laying low in Berlin, and he wanted nothing to do with anyone that had been connected with Main Man. It really was a case of game over. It is with great fondness that I look back on the years I spent with David. He'd been a very good friend and a very big part of my life, and I don't think I've ever had a relationship with anyone else that went through such interesting changes. His basic character, which could sometimes be quite funny, was always the same as far as I was concerned, whether he was famous or not. In any case, I've known so many people before they were famous, and to me they've not really ever changed after they found fame and fortune. Jimmy Page is another example, because to me, he hasn't changed at all and we're still friends. Jimmy didn't find fame suddenly... He played on everybody's record. He was an in-demand session player, and when he first became famous, it just meant that he was richer and was touring more. It's all outer change when fame calls. Musicians don't suddenly become bastards because they've got money or lifestyle, assuming, of course, that they weren't bastards in the first place. The guys I knew in the 60s and 70s were in the post-war generation whose parents would have lived through and possibly fought in the war, so they would have known discipline and rationing when growing up. Bowie had years of flop records before he finally found success, but the only real change in him that I witnessed was really caused by the drugs, and even that was only temporary. Early on in that chapter, you mentioned that Mark Boland was dropping by your flat often writing and recording with David. You've told us a lot about your friendship with Angie and David. What was your relationship like with Mark over the years? Well, 
at that time I was going out with an antique dealer called Leslie Spitz and he was a good friend of Mark because Mark's manager was Leslie's best friend. So Mark used to drop in quite often to the bunker, as did David, and there were times when the two of them were there together and that's when I had this amazing machine, this Vortexian, and they did used to sit around and write songs and I'd be the tape-op and be recording them and overdubbing on this extraordinary weird old machine and I wish the tapes were still findable I don't know where they are because they'd probably be worth something now so Mark had always been pretty amazing a really good guy and when the main man collapse happened and suddenly bills weren't being paid and the car that I thought was mine but was in fact had been given to me by De Vries on something called the Ha Purchase. I mean, I was so ignorant, I didn't even know what the HP meant. I just thought when I'd been given a car, I thought I'd been given a car. I'd been given everything else, so why shouldn't it be the car as well? So when I finally realised, after somebody had been following me, and I thought originally he was a stalker, but it turned out to be the man from the Higher Purchase Company, when it turned out that main man had stopped paying the bills on this car, suddenly the car was repossessed and I was left wheelless for the first time ever. And not only that, uh, more or less jobless. Well, not quite jobless, but certainly cashless. And Mark Boland was amazing. He was the one that said, you know, I've got a spare car. Let me give you a car. He said, but it's a bit of an old rust bucket and it's sitting in some field somewhere in Wales or near Ross on Wye actually and uh, he said you can have it it's a mini he said I don't want to have a mini because I know that if I get into a mini if I drive a mini I'm bound to die in a mini and of course the irony is he did die in a mini but of course he wasn't driving it was Gloria who was driving him his partner at the time the mother of the son Roland Bolan so, you know, I I never saw any of this kind of competitiveness between David and Mark. They just used to muck about like two guys. I mean, you know, they'd bounce off each other, if nothing else. But Mark stands in my eyes as a total gentleman because by the time Leslie and I had taken a train all the way to Wales or wherever this car was parked, I saw to my horror, it literally was... It was a little minivan with no enduring qualities outside or inside even, but at least the engine went, so we spluttered and we got it back to London, to South Kensington. And I decided to funk it up, to pimp my ride, basically, and put the most marvellous red thick shag pile carpet everywhere inside this little van. Even, you know, the roof, uh, the bit by the dash, the front of the car, everything was covered in this thick, it was two inches long almost, this thick shag pile carpet. And the guy, Trevor, lovely gay Trevor, who's dead now, but he he came in and he, he decided to glue this on for us and he was so high for days because he was locked inside the mini sticking this glue on. It was always known as the Bolan Mobile or the Mark Mobile, and this was really sweet of him. But then, of course, Mark did die in the Mini, and and I always, whenever I go over the bridge at Barnes, there's always a few flowers and the tree at the bridge where he died in the car. And I went to the funeral, the crematorium, actually, in Golders Green, and I sat in the row of seats just behind Bowie and Rod Stewart, and it, because it was a Jewish thing, you had to wear a thing called a kapel. 
Rod was having trouble keeping his on because it was the days when he had spiky hair. It was very kind of very freaky to be in that uh, in the crematorium because total silence and then the casket or coffin I should say was brought in and as it came in there was a strange howl came from somebody I'm told that it might have been his mother I don't know who it was but very ghostly this howl in the place and they carried the coffin up and laid it onto the thing that then goes into the flame and I was astounded at how small and petite it was because he'd Mark had been on a diet, actually, because he knew that Gloria, his other half, had been in America recording. She's a great singer and a great songwriter. And I think at that time had been signed to Motown. And he was really looking forward to her coming back. And, you know, everything was, oh, you know, I'm waiting till Gloria's home. And that's why he spent a lot of time around at the bunker, as you know, just hanging out till she'd reappeared. And they'd just kind of got their life back on track when the accident happened. So it was pretty awful for everyone all round. And, you know, I, I will never forget the look of all the fans as I came out of the crematorium and the fans were all there. And it, somehow the weather can't have been that great because I just remember everyone's mascara of the fans were running, men and women, of boys and girls. And there was a huge white swan made of flowers. It was all kind of sad and I always thanked Mark every time I got in the car. And the irony is the Mark Bolan Mobile, which I drove with joy because it at least it went. And, of course, this was when main man had basically stopped paying all bills. There was not even really a main man office. And I was, um, at that time, starring in a musical called Mardi Gras at the Prince of Wales Theatre. And I was driving this funny old car that kept breaking down occasionally. And one day I'd gone, I was gone to, I think, the Little Feet concert at the Rainbow and I took Richie Hayward, the drummer, and I. we went to the studios to meet John Porter. Then we came out at five in the morning. The car had gone. It had been nicked. What idiot would nick a rust bucket? Anyway, um, a few days later I get a call from the police saying my car had been involved in a five-car accident with deaths. And spookily, it was the year's anniversary of the day that Mark had died. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. I never saw David and Mark ever having competitiveness. I mean, you know, Mark was more successful than David at the beginning anyway, so it probably just geared David on to get his shit together. That's Dana Gillespie talking about the main man years of her life from her new memoir, Weren't Born a Man. And there are some great pieces of Dana's memorabilia that are part of an ever-growing archive of main man documents, including articles, telexes and production notes, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the main man label website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.